Today's scripture is Genesis 3, 8 through 24. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Erica, for reading that. Good morning, everybody. My name is Eric. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love to meet you. And for everybody that I haven't had the chance to say Happy New Year to, Happy New Year. This morning, we are returning back to our fall teaching series on the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. And as it says, on the, uh, the cover of our bulletins and on our PowerPoint and all that, the title of this series is Prologue. This part of the Bible that we're looking at, Genesis 1 through 11, it could be that in our Bibles, as there are like these divider pages, there's really only two, Old Testament and New Testament, there could be after you turn that page that says Old Testament, there could be another page that says Prologue that describes these 11 chapters that are at the beginning of the Bible. A prologue is what is at the beginning of a story that sets the context for everything that will follow in that story. So without a prologue, things won't make sense. Without this prologue, we'll be lost as to the meaning of the events that follow. 
all the characters that follow in the story. We won't know where they fit in. It's like if you like the Lord of the Rings movies, which I love them. It's like the voice of Kate Blanchett at the beginning, right? The world has changed. And it goes on from there as she gives the prologue to the rest of the story and the rest of the movies. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, it's like those yellow letters at the beginning that kind of fly through space that tell you this is the context for everything that's going to happen. This is how all the characters fit in to the story that you're about to hear. That's what Genesis 1 through 11 is for the Bible, for the story of everything, and for the story of our own personal lives. Really, every person has to have some sense of prologue. Every culture in the world has to have some sense of prologue. Where do we come from? What's our origin? What's our destiny? What's the story that we are living in? So we are picking off, uh, picking up where we left off this morning. Um, I preached six messages in the fall on Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at creation. We looked at life as it should be, as God created it and intended it to be. Right before uh, the season of Advent, we moved out of chapter 2, which was paradise, life in the garden, life as it should be. And we looked at Genesis chapter 3, which gives us the events of the fall, tells us what's gone wrong, and describes life as it is, life as we know it. The focus of that message back in uh, November was on the fall. Where does sin come from? And how does sin work? Today, we'll be looking at what this chapter teaches us about the effects of sin. Genesis 3, and everything we just read, is a necessary, it's a required part of every person or every culture's prologue. That's what the Bible says. That's the claim of this chapter, that everybody needs to know this. Everybody needs to understand this. This is a part of our lives. This is a part of our stories that we can't escape. It answers the questions, what happened? What's wrong? What's wrong with the world? Why is life so hard? Why is life so fraught with difficulties and frustrations and often the feeling of futility? Why does it feel like, and really every cultural story, every personal prologue that anybody could have would agree with this question that it needs to be answered, it needs to be addressed. Why does it feel like things are not the way they're supposed to be? And they should be. What is the problem? What really is the problem? I'm not a math person at all. So what would happen to me when I had to take math classes is I would get an answer. I'd do all my work. I would get an answer. And I would feel like I, I did it right. And it would be marked wrong. Or it would come out as the wrong answer. And so I'd do it again. And then I would do it again, and I kept getting the same answer. And what would often happen to me is if I had a friend or a teacher help me with that problem, is they would say, that's the right answer to a different problem. And I would go back and look at the problem and realize, you know, I got a minus instead of a plus, or I had the wrong variable, or whatever it might be. And that happened to me all the time. The point I'm making is this. 
You have to know and define the problem correctly to arrive at the right solution, right? This is true of life. This is true of our own personal lives. And what we have here in Genesis 3 is the Bible defining the problem. What are the issues? What's wrong? It's all here in Genesis 3. So this is an essential, this is a fundamental part of the Bible's story. It defines the problem, and though it's not quite as obvious as defining the problem, it gives us the solution to the problem as well. It's all in this passage, so this morning I'd like to look at it under two headings, two points. Uh, First, the consequences of sin, and secondly, the cure for sin. So let's start with point one. It's clearly the focus of this passage, the consequence of sin. Reviewing the entirety of this chapter and the first seven verses in the chapter, what happened was in the garden, Adam and Eve were created in paradise, created uh, to live in harmony and flourishing the way God had intended them to live. And in one through seven, what happens is Adam and Eve make the choice to be autonomous. The word autonomous is made up of two words in the Latin, self and law. Adam and Eve choose to be a law unto themselves. They choose self-rule instead of God's rule, eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in seeking moral, good and evil, and epistemological, fancy word for knowledge, what is true and what is not, in seeking moral and epistemological autonomy, now Adam and Eve have to live with the consequences of that choice. So what are the consequences of that choice? What happens when human beings choose self-rule and self-law instead of living under God's rule and God's law? As you heard us read that passage, as you're looking at it this morning, how would you describe what we have heard, what we've read? What's a word you would use? What's a phrase you would use to describe what's in this passage? Well, one of the best words that I know of and many theologians use in commenting on this passage to answer that question is the word alienation. I think that word is one of the best words to describe this scene here in Genesis 3. Alienation. Let me check in. Do do we have slides or not right now? Not right now. That's okay. Alienation. Define it like this, being estranged or separated, the basic definition, being estranged or separated from something, someone, or somewhere that you were formerly connected to or in harmony with. So if there's an alien from space that comes to earth, well, they are estranged from or separated from their home planet, right? Or we use that word sometimes to describe somebody who's a foreigner or a stranger in a land. They are separated from their homeland. And there we have the slide. In this word, alienation, we have just in one word a description of everything we see unfold that defines the consequences of sin according to this passage, according to the scriptures. 
in all the relationships that Adam and Eve were created by God to flourish in, to experience harmony in, to find joy in and life in every single aspect, in every single facet of their human experience. They now experience alienation. Relationship with self, relationship with God, relationship with each other, relationship with their work and their calling and their purpose in life. Alienation. And even with creation itself. Let's see how this is all here in the text. First, relationship with self. Here in the passage, if you look at verse 8, how does it begin? It says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what we have here is a picture of Adam and Eve. They're hiding in shame. What is shame? Shame is that deep feeling that something is wrong with me. It's about, at its core, our relationship with ourselves, shame is. Not being comfortable or confident with ourselves and who we are. Not able to stand as we are before other people. In verse 7 it says, this is not in the bulletin, their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, they made coverings for themselves. So as a consequence of sin, Adam and Eve lost a secure sense of self. That's what's happening here. And they tried to cover up their, themselves. They tried to hide themselves. When they looked at themselves and thought of themselves, they said, Ooh, I don't like this. I don't want others to see this, and so I need to cover up. And so that's the first thing we see here as a consequence of sin. Relationship with self was broken. Adam and Eve no longer knew or wanted to know themselves as they were or accept themselves as they were. Alienation from, them, from their own selves, their very selves. Next, we see alienation in their relationship with God. This is the clearest consequence of sin here. Adam and Eve doubted God's word, his character, and they directly disobeyed his command, the one command they were given. So in verse 8, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they did not want to walk with him. Instead, they wanted to hide, and they were afraid. Walking with God is a phrase that, happen, that, that, that occurs throughout the book of Genesis to describe a close an intimate and genuine and living relationship with God. It's used of Enoch and Noah and Abraham. Here we see Adam and Eve. They didn't want, with, want to walk with God. They had lost their walk with God. They were alienated from him. Relationship with self, with God, and now relationship with each other. Prior to eating of the tree... In Genesis 2, we read the man and his wife, verse 25 of chapter 2, were naked and yet felt no shame. And then after eating of the tree in verse 8 in chapter 3, it says the man and his wife, same phrase, hid 
from each other. Even before they hid from God, as it says he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they were actually hiding from each other behind their coverings. They were alienated from each other. They no longer felt safe to be seen, to be known, to love and be loved. Towards each other, they were saying, I don't know if I want to be known by you. I don't know if you're safe, so I need to cover up. And the clearest sign of this alienation comes when they, Adam and Eve, who were created to live side by side, to be in partnership together, to face the world together, carrying out God's mission to cultivate creation and fill the earth with his image. Instead of living side by side, Adam blames Eve. When God confronts him, he says, the woman you gave me, she did it. It's her fault. And so alienation between one another begins. Instead of seeing the log in our own eye, we see the speck in our brother's and sister's eyes. We judge others as worse than us. We say, they're the main problem, not me. And in verse 16, we see what was meant to be a relationship of harmony and service and love as we see God's words to the woman. It's going to be this relationship where there is a power struggle. There's the desire to dominate and master and be mastered. There's profound alienation between man and woman, husband and wife, and indeed all humanity. Relationship with self, relationship with God, relationship with each other, and relationship now to their calling and their purpose and their vocation. Adam and Eve were blessed by God in Genesis 1 and 2. They were empowered by God and were told of the work and the vocation and the purpose they were given as human beings. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. As stewards, cultivate it. You were created in my image. Rule as I would rule over this place. We see in in, uh, chapter 2, there's further information given as to their calling. Adam is called to work the ground in chapter 2, verse 5, to bring forth its potential and its life-giving abundance. And now what we see, as this text details the consequence of sin, is that in all their work and all their calling now, it will be fraught with pain and difficulty And frustrations, Eve, bearing children will have intensified pain. So being fruitful and multiply comes with pain, with a reminder of this alienation of the curse. Adam Adam in his work in cultivating the ground, it says, now the ground, Adam, is cursed. It's going to work against you. There's going to be painful labor all the days of your life. You're going to be fighting thorns and thistles. So work and calling, it's not taking away the work and calling that God has given to humanity, but now it is fraught with difficulty and frustration and even a sense of futility. So when we pull weeds, literally pull weeds in your yard or in your garden or metaphorically when we pull weeds, it feels good for a moment. Weeds are gone. And then next week, weeds are back. There is frustration, and that curse has infected all of our work. We work so hard to build and cultivate something 
maybe in our jobs and work and our families, it can be torn down in an instant. It can be forgotten in a few years. There's alienation in our work. This leads to the last aspect of alienation I'd like to point out here, our relationship to creation itself. Creation itself has been affected by sin. Humanity created to subdue the earth, not to exploit it or to abuse it, but to cultivate and care for it as a gift from God and to make it a gift for others. Now it's more like a fight, fighting against creation, this cursed ground, these thorns and these thistles. Romans 8, as we read a little bit about in our call to worship, says creation itself has been subjected to a kind of futility. So we are alienated from the very ground, from the very planet, from the very earth we inhabit. We take a look at all this. This helps us to understand what's going on with what God said would be the consequence of sin. It's not here in this text. It's in Genesis 2.17 where God says, In the day that you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly or surely die. And sometimes this puzzles us because we look at this and go, Did it happen? Did they die? They're still there. God didn't strike them dead. They're still living. Eventually, they'll die. We see that here in the text. It says, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. What died in the day that they ate was life as it was meant to be. Life with God at the center and all of these relationships in harmony. The Hebrew word would be shalom. Life as God designed and intended to be, all that died and in its place came alienation, estrangement, difficulty, frustration. So our physical death is just one aspect of the consequence of the fall. This is why later on in the scriptures we read things like in Ephesians 2 where it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's written to people who were alive. I'm alive, I'm here, I'm breathing. No, you were dead. And Romans 6, 23, which says the wages of sin is death. This isn't mainly speaking of a one-time penalty. You'll die eventually physically. This is talking about what sin pays you, what sin gives you when you live under self-rule. And self-law, there's a payment, there's a wage that you get. That's death, alienation from all the relationships you were made to thrive and flourish in. There's so much we could say about this. I want to give uh, two reflections and applications of all this. One for the mind, one for the heart. First for the mind. All this gives us a comprehensive explanation as to the problem we are all living in and we all face. The Bible story and prologue here gives us the most comprehensive and non-reductionistic explanation for the struggles and the pain and the difficulty of life as we all know it. What happened? What's wrong? What's the problem? What often happens is that people and their individual perspectives or ideologies or belief system, they will take one aspect, one lens and say, this is the problem. This is the thing that we need to fix and solve and life will work for us. Let me explain with some examples. Sometimes people will put on the psychological or the therapeutic lens and say, 
Let's focus on the individual. Let's focus on the self. Let's come to accept ourselves. Let's come to know ourselves and grow in self-awareness. Let's come to take better care of ourselves. Let's have self-care. Let's avoid triggers and trauma, etc. Solve all this and you will be happy. Others try on the social theory lens and look at everything through that one lens. They want to focus on social alienation. Who's to blame? Let's look at all the power struggles between people and groups, between male and female and races and the oppressors and the oppressed, etc. If we solve social alienation, we'll solve everything. Some people look at everything through the religious lens. Focus on moral responsibility to God or the divine law. Say, what's wrong? Moral behavior. Let's fix it. Let's be more responsible. We are alienated from God. Let's stop being bad and obey. Others try on the naturalistic lens and look at everything through that lens and say the main problem is we've become alienated from the natural world. We've exploited it and have used it. We're losing species. We're losing our health. We need to be organic. We need to go back to the land. When we do that, all will be well. Now, There are probably others out there that I left out. According to Genesis 3, which of these is wrong? Which of these is right? The answer is everyone. They're wrong if you see all of life through that one lens. They're right in that they're seeing an aspect of the alienation that has come as a consequence of sin. The biblical picture is tragically, it's not something we say, yay, everything's wrong with the world. Aren't we great for saying that? It's tragic, but it's comprehensive, and it's true to life. All these aspects of life were made by God to be interconnected, to be in harmony, and you can't isolate one from the other. The theological, yes, our relationship with God is at the center, but from that, when that breaks down, all the other dominoes fall. So for Christians... It means a restoration of our relationship with God will lead to the restoration of all our other relationships to self, to others, to our work and our calling, and even to creation itself. It means as Christians we should watch out, we should not reduce the problem. In doing so, we reduce the solution, we narrow salvation. We narrow it to make it far less than what God has intended and accomplished in Christ. So we should avoid oversimplifying and recognize the complexity. That's for the mind. It gives us a comprehensive explanation. Now for the heart. It validates our common experience, all of this. The Bible story and prologue here and telling us what's happened, what's wrong, what's the problem. It validates what we all feel and know in our hearts. I would suggest in a more profound way than any other worldview or story can do. This morning, every person here at some level is experiencing frustration and is fighting on one of those fronts in one of those relationships. Every one of you here this morning is coming in and I know you're fighting. 
It's hard. No one is exempt. We long for life to be in harmony, to be in balance, to have shalom. But it seems like we're always fighting and we always have to fight for life as it should be and it's meant to be and it ought to be. You look at Genesis 3.15, if you look at that verse, it says, God says, I'm going to put enmity between the serpent and his seed and the seed of the woman. Enmity means a fight. This fight is a gift from God and it's the curse from God. God puts the enmity, God puts the fight. Adam and Eve had been friendly with the serpent prior to this and God says, no, he's going to lead you to death and alienation. You're going to fight. That's a gift, but it's also a curse because fighting has a cost. Fighting is hard and evil fights back. So here's what I want to say. Here's the point. Christianity doesn't say to us, if you feel like you're always fighting, if you feel like at every aspect and area of your life that there's frustration, there's difficulty, Christianity doesn't say there's something wrong with you, get it together. You're not a good enough Christian. Or just do this one thing and everything will fall into place. Or try this thing and it'll get better. It won't be harder anymore. Learn this principle, and one day you'll stop fighting. You'll be free of frustration. No. What we lost in Eden, in Christ, He is leading us into healing. But it's lost. We don't have it back yet. Alienation is everywhere, and it's in everyone. As I was driving to uh, my office this morning to uh, finish stuff up, I noticed this happens a lot when it rains on Irvine, um, Irvine Road, Irvine Boulevard. Uh, what will happen is there's these signs that say flooded, the big yellow signs. And it wasn't flooded today. It was flooded a couple of days ago. But it seems like when they know that rain is coming again, they're like, why, why take down the flooded sign? It's going to get flooded again. So just leave them up. And that to me was a picture of what life is like. And we should acknowledge this. And we don't have to pretend it's not like this. The sign that says fallen. (laughs) We live in a fallen world. That sign is not coming down until Jesus returns and all things are made new. So we got to keep it up. So what do we do to make the world a better place? We already talked about it in our call to confession. There are a lot of answers to that question, but it begins with groaning. Maybe we did it already during our time of confession. We groan. Romans 8 says, be real, be honest. Life in a world that was good and is now cursed all around is hard. At times it can feel helpless. Eternity is set in our hearts, as Ecclesiastes says, and yet at the same time, it feels like life is futile. Every time we make progress over here, this thing breaks down. Last night, we got a call that there's a leak at the house that we own in Carlsbad, and it's like, well, that's nice. I didn't really want that to happen. I thought we had everything okay for our plans, but no, this happens. And that's a very tame example to the things that we can struggle with, the things that we are all fighting Christians can be honest about our groaning. Did you catch it in Romans 8? 
it says that the Holy Spirit, this is further down in, in verse 26, the Holy Spirit, when we don't know what to say, He, God the Holy Spirit, groans within us. So God Himself is groaning and saying, this is not the way it should be. I know you're fighting. I know that you feel weak. I know that you wish it was all made new. And you don't know if you can keep fighting. I'm groaning with you. It won't always be like this. But for now, you don't have to pretend that it isn't. Until we are all set free in the new creation, we will groan. We groan in grief at what was lost and how we feel it, and we groan in hope for what will be. Is there hope, though, in all of our groaning and fighting? Yes. We spent a lot of time talking about things that are hard and feel hopeless and dark and fighting. Is there hope? Yes, and this passage speaks powerfully to that hope. There is a cure for sin and all of its consequences. What is that cure? To summarize what we've just said about the consequences of sin, every single one of us is in flight from God, and every single one of us is locked in a fight with sin and its consequences in every aspect of life. That's a lot of bad news here in this passage, but once we get the problem right, there is great hope here, far greater hope than any human solution. And it's not what we think. It's not what a lot of people think Christianity says is the hope, is the cure. And it's all right here at the beginning of the Bible, at the very entrance of sin. Here is the hope. Here is what we do to experience the cure for sin. One, we answer God's questions. Two, we believe God's promise. What is the cure? The cure begins with number one. Facing God and answering his questions. What are God's questions in this passage? He says to Adam, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Whose voice are you letting set your sense of self? Who told you you need to hide and run from me? Did you disobey the command? And to Eve... What have you done? God's questions here are not to learn something he doesn't know. God's questions here are not to accuse. They could be read that way. Where are you? What have you done? That's not the tone at all as we see things play out. Then why? What are these questions for? These questions are for restoration. Adam and Eve's confessions here, look at this. They're pretty bad confessions aren't they? They begin with blaming someone else and evading responsibility. Adam even blames God. You gave me a woman. It's your fault, God. And then he blames his wife. Eve says, the devil made me do it. These are not models of good, heartfelt, and genuine confession. But both in the end... They got there. They both said the same words, and, and I ate. Not a great confession, but what did God do? He covered them. 
as the text says. He made them clothing. He covered their shame and guilt in verse 21. God, who they thought might crush them, strike them down, he responds with grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. He did this for the couple who plunged the world into sin. He will do the same for you. Even when we bring ruin and alienation into the world and into our own lives, the cure begins with God, not away from him. It's God who initiates the cure. It's God who pursues Adam and Eve, and he pursues us, even in our sin. That's what this text is saying. Today, right now, the cure for sin is the same. The beginning is the same. It starts here. Confess. The cure to sin begins by facing our own part in it and stop, stopping our hiding, stopping our blaming, and answer. Answer God. Own our part. Secondly, believe God's promise. Look at verse 20. This doesn't make any sense if you look at this. After hearing all about the curse, we just went over everything that God said, all the consequences of alienation. Do you see how crazy it is that Adam says, I've got a name for you, wife. It's Eve, the mother of all life, the mother of the living. It would have been quite a downer, but more accurate for Adam to say, I have a name for you, mother of death. I mean, that would have been more accurate. Every child you're bringing into the world will experience alienation and curse and sin and a breakdown. Why did he name her this? And it is a little funny to put it like that, but let this sink in. Despite the death that is in the world, you are Eve, you are the mother of life. Why he believed God's promise in verse 15, that from Eve's seed... She will bear an offspring. She will bear a seed. One would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Look there again. It says, I will put the fight between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is called the proto-evangelium, meaning the first hint of good news, the promise of good news. It's not just that there's a fight, a fight against sin and evil and all its consequences. It's this, the fight won't last forever. Someone will come to gain the victory. There will be an end to the groaning. The serpent will strike the seed of the woman. There'll be a wounding. There'll be a cost. But victory will come. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The word strike can be translated crush. Now, we all know who wins in that fight. If somebody strikes your heel, I got a heel shot. Okay, well, I got a head shot. We know who wins that fight. This is a promise of victory. The seed and the offspring is a theme throughout the Bible, throughout Genesis. A seed will come to end the fight. One will come. In Genesis, you see... The expectation, oh, is it going to be Abel? Is it going to be Seth? Is it going to be Noah? Is it going to be the seed of Abraham, Isaac? And so on. And the scriptures tell us this seed, we know who it is. He has come. 
It is Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the God whom we flee from, whom we run from, comes running after us, pursuing us to the uttermost, so much that he becomes one of us, born of a woman, the seed of the woman. He runs to us in our fear and shame. He calls for our confession. Stand before me, he says, and I will cover you with my righteousness. And in Jesus, God himself enters the fight. He bears the curse, sweating even drops of blood. Thorns, he wore a thorn of crowns and returned to dust himself. He dies, but his death isn't a defeat. He wins the fight. I'm going to close this message with a way that none of my preaching professors said was a very good way to close a message. By quoting from a theological confession. But this one, this is probably the most beautiful statement in any theological confession out there, in my opinion. It covers everything that we just said. Let it sink in, friends. And where you are fighting, where you are hiding, let it call you out of hiding and let it move you to believe and trust, even in all your groaning, that the fight isn't forever. Jesus has won. From Article 17 in the Belgic Confession, it says this. What do we believe? We believe our good God by marvelous divine wisdom and goodness, seeing that Adam and Eve had plunged themselves in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made themselves completely miserable, set out to find them. Though they, trembling all over, were fleeing from God, and God comforted them, promising to give them his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and to make them blessed. Thanks be to God. This is true. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you that you are pursuing God. That in this world where we're fighting, sometimes it feels like on every front and we are groaning and life is hard and difficult. And even against our better judgment when we hide from you, that you don't leave us there. I pray this morning that you would lead us into the freedom of confession, living an open and honest life before you, owning our part, and that you would lead us more deeply into the hope of trusting in your promise, that this fight won't be forever because you have gained the victory for us through your son Jesus. Fill us with hope again, we pray in him. Amen. Would you stand with me?